we'll, um, we'll make a start uh, and, and the, peop the people who have yet to come can, can just sneak in quietly uh, at the back. Uh, I have one announcement to make, which is unfortunately Helena Kennedy um, quite, quite near to the event uh, found that she had to pull out, so I'm very sorry if anyone came along particularly to listen to Helena. However, we have uh, Ferdinand Mount, who is very kindly agreed to uh, step in at the last minute, and uh, this is a, a wonderful thing, because uh, he he's he was former head of the Prime Minister's um, Policy uh, Advice Unit under Margaret Thatcher. He was one of the few Conservatives who really engaged in the Charter 88 agenda um, in the late 80s, early 90s, who wrote a very important book on the British Constitution in the 1990s. In the 2000s, he was vice chair of the Power Inquiry, uh, actually alongside Helena, uh, which developed some very interesting ideas on, on constitutional reform and some very interesting analysis. So, uh, Ferdinand Mount is going to chair the session, and without further ado, I'll pass over to him. Thank you very much, David. Well, um, I hope this is your only disappointment because, even to the meanest. Um, Hilarious I am, I'm, I'm not Helena Kennedy, but um, uh, I spent a very happy uh, running round behind her on the Power Commission and I think we all learned a great deal from it. Um, it's um, uh, a delight to be here to celebrate the um, 20 years of Charter 88 and the special number of parliamentary affairs which I will wave in your faces if you haven't already got it. Um, we have a a distinguished though fleeting panel. Um, uh, David Erdos himself, Centre for Socio-Legal Studies at Oxford and Research Fellow at Balliol. Peter Facey, Director of Unlock Democracy and a long-time toiler in this particular political vineyard. Um, Peter Oborn, who alas won't be with us, so um, uh, I've been asked to say something as well because Peter's over the other side writing about the pre-budget report. So I'm not only imitating Helena, I'm imitating Peter Oborn as well, something few people have attempted to do. Um, and, and finally, here is Tony Wright, the alas retiring and soon to be much missed MP for Cannock Chase and Chairman of the Public Administration Select Committee. Um, I'm very pleased that we're having this uh, review of Charter 88 and its contribution it's made and of the uh, constitutional reform movement generally because any such movement needs to stay alert to new facts and problems and to remain self-critical towards its own preferred analyses and remedies. Any suggestion that well, you're hardening into dogma or any hint of a party line to be towed is, uh, is death to the, the kind of free critical thought which is required to untangle these questions. Three questions have been proposed for us on the program tonight. Um, what have been the movements strengths and achievements, what differences it made, how has it shifted the terms of debate and what concrete things has it uh, actually um, produced. Um, and then the second question or family of questions is where has it gone wrong, what has it failed to do uh, and, and, and how, in what ways has it failed to shift the terms of debate. 
And the third question, of course, is where do we go from here? Um, I'd like, um, since um, uh, in my role as P.O. Born, um, I'd like to say really just two things in, on, the, on the critical side um, and point to two salient pieces of unfinished and in, indeed largely unattempted business for uh, constitutional reformers. Um, the first is, by and large, the remarkable absence of Europe from the movement's demands for democratic renewal. This doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but it applies to the broad thrust of, 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 uh, of stuff coming out of Charter 88 and its allies. And the EU is generally invoked in these discussions only as a lever for inserting other desired elements into our arrangements, such as the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, the, the questions of democracy and transparency within the EU and its operations have been largely abandoned to the right and in a few cases to the far left. The, the centre left, the liberal left, from which Charter 8 has derived a great deal of its strength, if not all of it, is, um, has, is rather party free in these matters and is rather keen just to let uh, the EU pursue its own agenda without that um, uh, ferocious critical attention which we give to things that are happening at home. So that's one thing I'd like to throw out and see what you think about. And the other, uh, perhaps more gaping hole, is the absence, particularly in the early days of Charter 88, of much discussion about political participation. Powers where the, the great clenched fist of Whitehall was to be unclenched, power was going to be pluralized, decentralized, but that was mostly a question of distributing them to other elites, the judges being the most obvious one. Twenty years on, we cannot help noticing that whilst many of Charter 88's uh, demands have been more or less met or are in train of being um, inserted into the system, there has been a grievous hollowing out of popular participation. The turnout in general and local elections with dire prophecies of what's going to happen in next uh, May uh, at the general election. And of course, the even more dramatic hollowing out of political parties, which have uh, come down in terms of membership from um, uh, millions to hundreds or tens of thousands. And because of that, have had decisions um, and uh, the choice of candidates largely increasingly removed uh, from them and um, controlled by the centre. Meanwhile, important decisions which once had to pass through elected assemblies, if indeed they were not left to the discretion of private institutions and individuals, have now been uh, placed under the rule of mostly unanswerable quangos, uh, which now exercise in the last year or two, we've had very dramatic ones, such as the, um, the new law uh, removing inf uh, the major infrastructure decisions, the siting of airports uh, with nuclear power stations from the old processes which were at least um, um, part of the structure of local authority. And um, there are plenty of other examples of, of, central, of centralization being accompanied by a growing 
unanswerability of power to elective representatives. And I don't think any reform movement which fails to tackle these lacunae can be said to have got to the heart of the matter. I mean, we can be very pleased if we see um, all these uh, nicely parceled out rights and structures of appeal, but if major decisions have been removed from democratic um, argument and participation, then I don't think we can be said to have succeeded. And in fact, I think any kind of impartial visitor to our world, if asked to sort of look back over the past 20 years, would be more inclined to see a kind of more or less benign managerialism being the order of the day rather than an increasingly robust and vibrant democracy. Uh, well, that's quite enough for me. Um, and now we're going to have David. Well, thank you very much. Um, I mean, picking up on a few of Ferdinand Mount's uh, points to begin with, what, what I want to talk about is uh, the constitutional confusion which we seem to have uh, got ourselves into. And what, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that we're unclear these days what principles underpin our constitutional framework. I mean, it used to be said that they were, you know, there was parliamentary sovereignty. That, that was the fundamental principle, at least politically speaking, although it was always muddled up a bit with the common law. Um, and in particular, we're unclear what all these reforms post-1997 uh, amounted to. What were their aims? How do they fit together? Uh, and, and these sorts of questions. And at least some people think that these issues are linked to, to the things you've just mentioned, low uh, turnout of elections, voter apathy, and some public expectations which are far too high compared to the uh, reality of uh, public life, uh, resulting in, in the public anger over things like uh, MPs' expenses. Um, now, in the, in the volume which has just been published, Matt Flinders from the University of Sheffield maps this out quite thoroughly with this concept <laughs> of constitutional anomie. Um, and what does he mean by that? He says that reforms have been introduced bereft of any underlying logic or explicit principles, um, and there's been an inability to adopt a strategic approach um, which is uh, aware of the interrelated nature of any constitutional configuration. Now, Matt, certainly, most academics and most journalists seem to lay the blame of all of that, and maybe they're overstating their case a little bit, um, but they, they lay the blame on the Labour Party. They say, or, or appear to say, that groups such as Charter 88 provided a clear blueprint for change, but the Labour Party botched the job. And they botched the job because um, they adopted only a piecemeal approach to reform, they uh, cherry-picked the reforms which served their self-interest, they, they rejected the ones which, which didn't serve their self-interest, and, and, and we get the result of this confusion. Now, there are many elements of, of truth to that, and I don't want to um, try and suggest that, the, 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 say, electoral form for the House of Commons wasn't rejected on the basis, of, or to some extent, of, of, of self-interest. But I think this notion, and it is actually directly in the volume, that Charter 88 provided a clear roadmap for New Labour to follow is problematic. In fact, I'm going to argue that Charter 88 and the broader constitutional reform movement didn't really provide the Labour Party with a very clear roadmap in many critical issues. And that this failure to provide a, a roadmap on these issues helps explain the, the constitutional impasse which we've uh, come to today. So that, that, that's really what, what I, I'm going to 
uh, be trying to flesh out in the next, next five, five, five to ten minutes. Now, there was a kernel of, of, of consistency to the Charter. I don't want to deny that. It was about confronting pretty much Hailsham's elective dictatorship, although that, you know, the Charter was a left liberal grouping. In fact, they adopted much of the, the thinking of, of Lord Hailsham, the Conservative, in the 1970s, that it was problematic that we were an elective dictatorship based on parliamentary sovereignty and, and a dominant executive basically uh, ruling over all of us, um, often on a minority of the vote. However, any specificity of, of, of demand, there were ambiguities, omissions, misunderstandings and inconsistencies uh, which are directly related to the various problems which have arisen. So I'm going to talk about two of the most important and direct uh, problems which are pretty obvious ones. Then I'm going to talk about a substantive value which was pretty ambiguous in the Charter before moving on to discuss some of, of the absences um, in, in, on, in the Charter. So, the two policy areas where I think uh, problems have arisen with, which are directly related to the Charter are devolution and the role of the judiciary. So, so to start with um, devolution, the Charter, if you actually read it, uh, you, you would think that in fact it ha had a perfect solution to, to, to devolution. It said that we should guarantee an equitable distribution of power between the nations of the UK and between local, regional and central government. In reality, however, it piggybacked on the devolution movement in, in Scotland and Wales. And whenever it talked about what should happen to England, um, it, it was pretty silent. It, it talked about in English regions, but never suggested how these should come about, whether they should have a symmetric power with Scotland or Wales, um, what, what would happen if, in fact, the English people didn't want English regions, despite this being fairly apparent even then that that was quite a likelihood. So despite the rhetoric of saying they wanted an equitable distribution of power, they had no real concrete proposals for producing that, at least in relation to England. And the Labour Party came in and did actually try and mess around a bit with English regions and got into the same sort of problems as the Charter did when it tried to think about the issues in, 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 in the uh, 1990s as well. So I think that there's a linkage there about a failure to talk about the role of England and devolution. Human rights. I mean, human rights is in some ways both a success story for the Labour Party in terms of passing the Human Rights Act and in some way entrenching rights, but also much of the criticism, at least on the Liberal left, of the Labour Party is in relation to human rights and the anti-terrorism legislation and, and what is seen as an erosion of civil liberties. So what, what, you know, was the Charter, in a constitutional sense, particularly helpful here? Well, we all know the Human Rights Act isn't really a, a full Bill of Rights in the sense that it's still based on parliamentary sovereignty. The, the judges don't have a right to strike down law. And the rights which are entrenched are only those which are in the European Convention anyway. Um, there, there was no attempt to go for, for an indigenous uh, rights instrument. In contrast, the Charter 88 text appears to talk about a uh, enshrining various rights by the means of a Bill of Rights and, and putting these in some sort of entrenched written constitution. If you go into the archives and look at the, the, the debates, they're, they're down at the University of Essex Library, however, you realise that the reality within the movement, again, was very, very different. There was a huge schism between those people who would be willing to go for some form of entrenched rights and those who, in fact, 
wanted, were very, very suspicious of the role of the judiciary and wanted to remain, it, it to be remained that, uh, albeit reformed parliament, had had the final say over rights matters. And this was very explicitly pushed through uh, in the 1990s to become a sort of watered down version on, on a Bill of Rights, which amounted to, to little more than, than incorporation of, of the Convention. So I'm, I'm not sure that um, the Charter really grappled properly with the role of the judiciary under a reformed constitution. I think we're seeing those issues also um, play out today. The substantive value I wanted to mention was the tension between transparency on the one hand and privacy on the other. Um, I've just hot footed it actually from a, a data protection conference up in Manchester run by the Information Commissioner's Office. And it's pretty clear that we really haven't worked out that tension between privacy and openness. Um, and, and despite the fact that the, the Charter talks about open government and freedom, freedom of information, that the most uh, used exemption in the Freedom of Information Act, at least when the research was done, is the personal data exemption. Uh, because freedom of information, uh, um, that data protection is placed prior to, free, uh, to freedom of information within the FOI regime. Now, very creative work has been done by the judges when it comes to MPs' expenses and things like that in order to, to get round these issues in relation to, to public figures. And we might even think to some extent that has gone too far. But at least uh, in various other areas of life, this, this restriction really does result in an information shutdown. And given the fact that the data protection act applies not just to the public you know, realm in terms of official information, but also to all of our everyday activities, it really is quite a restrictive environment, at least for researchers uh, and others in civil society. But the Charter, is, in fact, the broader constitutional reform movement like the National Council for Civil Liberties actually pushed through and, and pushed very strongly for very strict data protection law. And the Charter talked both about privacy and about openness. And, and there again, it didn't really um, develop a, a, a solution to, to very serious problems with, 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 with which are around that issue. Ferdy Mounts just touched on, on Europe, so I, I, won't, I, I won't bore you uh, about Europe, uh, but I'm sure we have time to talk about that. Actually, that's the, the issue which I talk about in this volume. The, 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 the Charter didn't really, it didn't talk about an actual distribution of power uh, between the UK and Europe at all. This was t totally absent from the Charter. Again, despite the, the clear sense, even in the late 80s, that this was a very, very serious issue in terms of how the British people considered uh, the, the, the future of the Constitution, and, and theoretically and, and, and practically as well. A final tension I want to talk about, which came out during the conference last year, out of which this, this volume came, it is a sort of broader philosophical tension in the sense that the Charter as a list of demands very much stressed formal uh, change, the need for new institutions, new laws, new regulations. When in fact, when you actually talk to the people involved in the Charter, what they wanted was a cultural shift, a cultural shift towards treating people as citizens, not subjects, a, a cultural shift about us all as citizens acting together in, in a more cooperative manner. But I think there's a real real tension here, it, 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 it's in, in the most obvious sense that there's not necessarily much of a relationship between formal institutional change and the cultural shift. But even if there is a relationship, it might work both ways. I mean, it might be that if we continually formalise everything and create new laws and regulations, we'll produce 
the very uh, restrictive and, 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 and distrustful environment that we, that we don't want to, we, we, we absolutely don't want substantively to be, to be the outcome. So there seems to be a bit of a paradox at that, that level um, as well. So, I mean, just, just to offer some, some conclusions uh, before letting other people give, give their opinion. I don't want to actually underestimate the, the positives in the Charter, right? although I realise I've, I've, I've uh, not talked too much about the positives in the Charter. As I said, that there was a kernel of constitutional consistency which was terribly important in the Charter, uh, uh, which was combating the elective dictatorship, which I very much support and I think is, is, is very, very valuable. And the fact that the Charter brought such a new dynamism to that confronting the elected dictatorship is very, very important, shouldn't be underestimated. And I think that people like Martin Mocklin, who in the, in the early 1990s, who really did dismiss the Charter as, I mean, he said it was fundamentally flawed as a statement of principle, were, were going too far. And, and, and in fact, there was this kernel of consistency which was important. There were many admirable reasons why there wasn't more consistency. The Charter wanted to build a very broad movement and their articles in, in the issue which explore that and in many ways that was admirable. They wanted to build strategic alliances. They had a limited resource set. I mean clearly all this helps explain the, the problems I've just outlined and, and they are mitigating circumstances I acknowledge. But if there had been more consistent thinking even if that had resulted in disagreement about what we do about the judiciary, what we do about the English question, what we do about the, the tension between privacy and openness, and that disagreement had been brought into the open fully and fully debated, we would be in a better position than we are now because there would be a number of coherent options before the British people uh, which actually showed how a constitution could be coherent and could, could map out despite uh, it obviously um, people disagree whether that, that those coherent options were, were, were good or bad. So I think that going into the future and looking at how the constitutional reform movement uh, in the broadest sense and our democracy should uh, work into the future, there is necessary work to be done to try and map out those, those options for, 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 for constitutional coherence. And I think that quite apart from what the politicians may or may not do in terms of reform, that's the only way we're going to get out of the confusion we've got into. Thank you very much, sir. Um, <laughs> pointing out uh, the weak points and, the, and also the central strength of the whole uh, movement. Uh, Peter. Can I start with a sort of apology? I feel like a bit of a flaw in the sense that there's people in this room who were there at the beginning of Charter 88, including Anthony, one of the founding, the founders of Charter 88, and um, I must have jolly come lately in that sense, um, though that lately has been about 10 years of, in the democratic reform movement. Um, I actually want to be positive, because I, I, I'm, normally I'm sitting over there and I'm harping at Tony and others and telling him how terrible things are, and normally I'm the kind of person saying, you know, you know things aren't good enough. Um, and it's quite a novelty to be interrogated by academics um, on, the, on the other side. Um, if you look back over 20 years, there's been more democratic and constitutional reform in this period than probably in the entire history of the modern British state. You know, the, the transformation has actually been quite amazing. Um, if you look at the country I was born into, you, know, you were talking about a unitary state where effectively power 
existed solely effectively in this place. There was no Scottish Parliament, there was no Northern Irish Assembly, there was no Welsh National Assembly. You know, effectively, we lived in a, a world of parliamentary sovereignty and unwritten constitution. You know the, the story and the myth. That isn't the case today. Uh, uh, the world is different, and the constitutional reform movement and Tartarate particularly played a part in shaping and changing that world. Um, have we got to the end of the road? No. And I think probably one of the failures in some ways is to think in some ways that democracy, that there was a kind of end of the road to get to. Um, every generation will have democratic challenges um, to face. And as a constitutional reform movement, in some ways, one of my <coughs> is that if you become a shopping list, a kind of, these are the reforms you want, then you are in the danger of actually stopping thinking about the nature of your democracy. And actually, though the Charter was very successful at capturing a particular moment in time, the fact that it, over time, became a shopping list was one of the, was one of the, the failures. Because actually, you know, some of the difficulties we face today are different than we face in the 1980s. And some of the solutions were different. Now, I think there's a central message drawn from the Charter to today, which is actually that central government, that, the, that governance itself is too powerful, that, that there's not enough power resting in communities and not enough power resting in citizens, and the citizens' ability to, to shape their lives is not strong enough. And that message runs through the whole of the constitutional reform movement, not just from Charter 88, but also feelings at the power inquiry, but also through organisations as diverse as the campaign for the English Parliament, through to the Notes ID, through to the Electoral Reform Society. There's a central message that actually citizens need more power, more influence. In terms of the kind of failures, I think one of the big tactical failures, and it's, 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 it's understandable, is, is for a long time democratic reform was a centre-left issue. And I remember the first time I went to a Conservative Party conference, it was like kind of being a salesman and trying to sell to the Conservative Party that they could really be centre-left. And if you think about it, it was a completely stupid idea to try and do. I mean, you don't, you know, the, the idea that one part of our political spectrum owns the values of democracy and freedom is completely bonkers. But in some ways, that's what we got into. And I, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember writing letters to ministers in the, the late 1990s and being told that everything was perfectly fine with democracy, thank you very much. They're always very polite letters, by the way. You know, you always got very polite letters back from ministers telling you basically you're <coughs> completely bonkers and actually everything was fine. Uh, but the problem being that in 19, you look at the 97 election, and you compare it to today, those people who were concerned about democratic reform, rights and freedoms, were nearly exclusively um, in the Labour Party, the Nationalist Party, the Royal Democrats. And that the rhetoric we used, the language we used, was the language of the centre-left. And if you compare that to today, there are people from all sides of the political spectrum who now talk about democracy. 
um, if you put you know, Douglas Carswell, David Hannon in this room, they would eloquently talk about the need to empower people for democratic reform. But they come from a different place in the political spectrum, which is completely different from where the Charter came from. I mean, that's one of the strengths of where we are today, is that unlike the sort of the moment before 97, we now are at a point where everybody accepts that the status quo isn't sufficient. And I'm not saying there's universal agreement on what those reforms should be, and that's one of the challenges going forward. But the fact that there is a cross-party consensus that there is a need to reform, and there are people, you know, right across the political spectrum, and, and trust me, if you put somebody like kind of from the direct democracy group in the Conservative Party with various reformers from the Fabian Society or Progress and the Labour Party in the same room and got them off the subject of what they were there to talk through, you'd probably have a bun fight because they disagree on nearly everything possible. But on democratic reform, there is a central part there that is an agreement. And there are surprising kind of levels of agreement on particular reforms. And where we are today is actually having to try to knit that together and build a movement. Now, the one of the titles of today is kind of the Democratic Reform Movement. Charter 88 attempted, and Unlocked Democracy Today attempts, to, to, to build a, a people's organisation, an organisation of ordinary, if there is such a, a thing, people who care about the quality of democracy and organise to try to reform it. And we're not actually, Charter nor Unlocked Democracy are single issue pressure groups. We have a single issue, that issue is democracy, but that issue is huge. I mean, it can be talking about lobbying transparency, it can be talking about devolution, it can be talking about um, human rights, it can be talking about party funding. It's, it's a huge agenda. And most of the time, I feel inadequate to dealing with it, and the resources which we have are certainly inadequate to deal with the length of the issues. But building that broad movement, I think, is vital. Because in the past, just having single issue, you know, whether it be people who are in favour of referendums here, or people who are in favour of, of court representation, or you know, other particular reforms, you never get the weight of, of, of pressure to actually achieve things. Now, no, I constantly tell my directors and my board that as campaigners, we can only do so much. We don't create the agenda. This is partially why I disagree to a degree with, 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 with David. Is we can, at times, produce blueprints for things. And with academics and with other people and things, we can produce solutions to different areas. But our job is actually to put pressure and find the cracks and then stick our foot in the crack and try to make it bigger to create the opportunity for reforms, not necessarily always to be the people with the blueprint. Because one of the fundamental kind of philosophical stances, certainly about democracy, is that actually the people themselves have to have a say in shaping that new constitutional settlement. So it's not for me as the director of a pressure group to say what that settlement should be. You know, it is for me to try and create the the moment where we can actually have that. Now, one of the important things, I think, with Charter Board, 
it is the idea that we actually need whole-scale reform. And though I spend a lot of my time fighting in trenches on particular issues, we try and always keep the idea that actually we need, desperately as a country, holistic, whole-scale reform. Now, let me deal with just some of the kind of <coughs> issues, and I'll then shut up and, and let Tony tell you. I think there are you know, issues like participation, which I think in the beginning, I think, that the movement neglected. I'd have to say, I don't think that is the case today. If you look at our stuff, but also stuff in terms of the power inquiry in Power 2010, I think the question of Europe is an interesting one. Um, and I think it actually is a challenge. I think the big issue is actually the devolution question of England in terms of how you decentralise. And I think that is one of the big challenges going forward. Um, but I think the claim that power should be decentralised, which is in the Chancellor and it is today, is actually the right one. And I am I'm not a purist in the sense that I don't think there is one way of doing it. And it may be that the, the lesson for England is actually the lesson we found for the United Kingdom, which is actually you can do things differently in different parts and stay together as a country. If that applies to the United Kingdom, then it can also apply to England. But I think that the, you know, going forward, it is actually has to be the powerful message that ordinary people coming together and engaging can actually make a difference. Because if there's any message from the Charter and from the successful Charter HA, that's the one which gives me hope. Well, the, the um, if I sound like a call, it's because I had that. I did an interview with, with Anne Whittaker a couple of days ago, and she had a screaming cold. And uh, <laughs> I did my best to sit as far away from her as possible, but it wasn't entirely successful. So if you want a Whittaker call, do come and talk to me. Um, the, pro the problem with um, reviewing 20 years, of course, is that you realise that you were a lot younger then, um, and the world was a headier place. Uh, full of promise, and uh, now things are rather different, and we know more, and we're older. Uh, and so it's always a bit of bit of sweetness, on the one hand, remembering a rather exciting time, and I think it's worth remembering how exciting that time was. Um, it wasn't, and I was, I was uh, then as I am now in the West Midlands, um, not at the not in the epicenter of. Um, of metropolitan activity, uh, and I'd become a, a, Labour, a Labour candidate and then a, a Labour MP in 1992. Uh, saw myself very much as in the in the orbit of the Charter 88 world, going to those exciting meetings um, with all these great declarations about the change of political direction uh, that was that was coming. Uh, I wrote a little book called Citizens and Subjects, um, trying to pick up some Charter 88 themes as I see now, but to work them back into the tradition of, of political ideas in Britain to show a, a sort of pedigree, or perhaps the absence of a pedigree. And that was one of the one, was one of the extraordinary things, which is that we'd had no tradition in this country for many, many years, a tradition of constitutional discussion, argument, and discourse. 
probably had to go back to the beginning of the 20th century before you found any serious discussion of, of that kind. And you'd had, a, you'd had a, an agreement across the political spectrum, left to right, about not just, the, not just that British political and constitutional arrangements were acceptable, but in some sense that they were a glory something to be able to demonstrate to the world where foreign travellers would come and admire and I mean there's a whole body of literature that reflects that so that's the, that's the context this, this, this tradition on left and right shared by academics right across the board of thinking that we had a, a political system which had cracked the secrets of government and if you wanted to know about how you did good government you came to Britain and saw now all that changed and it changed quite dramatically in the 1980s and I don't know the extent to which Charter 88 as it were made the weather or whether they reflected a changing weather at the time and I suspect the truth is it's a bit of it's a bit of both and uh, the academics will have a fruitful occupation for many years to come <laughs> teasing out these kind of things and I think uh, what happened was this and it's one of the interests of the pit but it seemed to me that there were a core of people who were, who were very influential in forming Charter 88 who were on the left who were responding quite directly to the collapse of Marxism and were responding to the collapse of a whole set of ideas on the left and in a paradoxical and interesting way having spent a long time talking about the irrelevance of the political superstructure suddenly deciding and, and discovering that the political superstructure was where it was at that is how the state is organized constitutional arrangements the most boring thing that you could talk about suddenly deciding <laughs> that this is where the political action was to be was to be found but they did so at a moment which caught the tide caught the tide coming from many different directions sometimes said yes um, Lord Hailsham had as it were given, the, given, given an account of the of the theory of elected dictatorship and Mrs Thatcher provided the practice <laughs> and, but that, I mean I didn't say that's a joke that was absolutely true it is I think it's it is impossible to understand the salience and impact of the renewal of interest in constitutional ideas and reform in that period and therefore the ability of Charter 88 coming from those origins to build a larger progressive alliance unless you situate it absolutely in the politics of the period because what everybody discovered was it was possible in our system for an ideological warrior like Mrs Thatcher coming in that case from the right to seize hold of our system and to use it without check or balance for her ideological purposes so in a way what came together was an attack from those of us who were not well disposed towards it an attack on that kind of politics with an attack on the system that allowed that kind of politics to happen so these two things came came together 
and it's um, you know, you, it's, it, 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 there are always paradoxes, but it's the paradox I think that without Mrs. Thatcher and without that period, there would have been no constitutional reform movement of that kind. But it did enter the it did enter the sort of culture and enter the vocabulary and, and had a major impact. And what you can't say, of course, given all that happened afterwards, is what the impact of Charter 88 as an institution was on all that happened subsequently. I mean, you could try some of the pieces in this, um, in this, in these articles, uh, try, but it's extremely difficult to do. And what you really have to do, uh, and Peter's right, I mean, it, 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 we have lived through this most extraordinary period of constitutional reform. I mean, that's just a given, let's not under, understate that. But what you would have to do was to try to look at each of the elements of that program and see what the genesis of it was. What were the dominant forces? Who were the key actors? And the story would be a far more complex one than just a sort of reading of the reading of the history would suggest. I mean, the forces that bore on the devolution issue were quite different from the sort of arguments that that went on around the Human Rights Act or the Freedom of Information legislation. And you'd really, and it would be an interesting thing to do, is to try to look at what the constituent elements were of the process that produced these outcomes. But of course, we finish up. And there are many paradoxes here, but perhaps the biggest paradox of all is that we've had, in some sense, a constitutional revolution in the last 10 years in its, in its scale and scope. But, of course, the question is, has it produced the benign consequences for our political system? But it's that it was anticipated that it would. And there the verdict is rather bleak. <coughs> as far from doing that, we arrive at a point where there's more political disenchantment and political disengagement from the formal political system than we've known in modern times. And that is the huge paradox, I think. This huge program of constitutional reform that was supposed to produce all these rejuvenating benefits for our political system, that's in fact produced a situation of political crisis. Now, I know we've had, my goodness, I know, we've had the MPs' expenses issue, but I'm even putting that to one side. Before the MPs' expenses issue, I'd have made the same, I'd have made the same point. It's just, begot, just become worse and it's kind of validated this, this process. People now feel entitled to be disengaged because of what MPs have been up to. So I think you, that is an inescapable paradox that we have to confront and work our way through. And we can work our way through it by trying to do politics in different ways. I think we can do it by understanding that it's not always structural changes which produce good or bad outcomes. I mean, just think of the MPs' expenses saga. You could have had all the written constitutions in the world and it wouldn't have saved you from that. It's 
a question of political culture and political behaviour. It's how we do politics that is fundamental in that respect. So you've got to think all the time about the relationship between the structural questions and the cultural ones. Um, you've got to realise too, and I think it's easier to see this now perhaps than it was then, it isn't just enough to have a set of, as it were, constitutional principles. You've really got to put some hard work in to think about the working out of those principles because the truth is there's no, you can't just read them off. These are irredeemably complex questions. Uh, there are almost always trade-offs in any proposal. There are always upsides and downsides. Whether, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Electoral reform, devolution, centralism versus localism, anything. And it, during the Charter 88 years, certainly when, we were, when the government was beginning to implement its program. What did, what did um, disappoint me somewhat then was that there was no, and, and you know, I'm sure the resources of the movement made this inevitable, but what I really would want as a, as a member of parliament who was trying to work on some of these issues was a level of detailed input that would actually help us to get this process right. And we moved from a level of generality and I still think that's, that's an absence. We know more about some of these things now. And we know we have to reconcile a number of things. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just end by that. I think we have to reconcile how we try to rejuvenate our political institutions because you should not give up on your institutions because in a sense they're all that's there when everything else is gone. But, but seek to rejuvenate those in a whole variety of different ways by you know, trying out primaries for selecting candidates, for trying to make parliament work better, doing all kinds of things. But linking that with new kinds of civic engagement. Uh, because as people have said, I mean, the challenge is to try to, to, to respond to, I think, what is a kind of civic crisis now? Um, not, to, not to overstate it, but I think we're in real civic difficulties for a whole variety of reasons. And it's clear that, that as I say, having implemented the series of constitutional measures has not, has not remedied that, which suggests that there are other forces at work which perhaps are more significant. And then, uh, perhaps finally to say that for me at least, the task is to, to reconcile a system of government which does give you a capacity for strong action. There's no question, this was, I mean, this was the heart of the elected dictatorship critique, that, that you had strong government without effective checks on it. Now, I, I think actually having a, a system of government with a capacity for action is a good thing. I think the, the way to get people really disillusioned is to get governments that can't act. Um, you know, and the reason that Obama cannot possibly deliver on Copenhagen is because he's got a political system which won't, which won't allow it. The reason why he had so much trouble getting his health reforms through was because he got a political system that wouldn't allow it. So I, 
I do think we have to try to retain the notion of a government with a strong capacity for action. But where we, I think, are deficient and remain deficient is having the countervailing pressures, is matching a system of strong government with a system of strong accountability. And I don't, frankly, do I end with this, frankly, I don't know whether that can be done or not. I don't know whether our constitutional arrangements enable that to happen, but certainly in everything that I've been involved in, whether it's thinking about what we do to the House of Lords, or thinking about electoral systems, or thinking about what we do to the House of Commons, uh, that has been, for me, the key theme. The idea that strong government requires, that the good government requires good scrutiny, and that we need to have a system of government with a capacity for action with one that has effective accountability built into it. And there are many more fronts on which action is required too. But the great, I mean, amongst all the glue, the great advantage, and Peter touched on this, and I think it is true, <coughs> a constitutional conversation started in the 1980s, of which Charter 88 was a major part. And although the consequences have been, in some respects, disappointing for the larger civic agenda, it is true that there is now in this country a kind of consti a constitutional conversation that did not exist before. Now that is a major advance and we now have, I hope, you know, collectively put our minds together to make sure that that constitutional conversation goes in a direction that will genuinely have a chance of remedying some of these civic ills that it's too easy to identify. Thank you very much.